0: You are tuned in to episode 6 of Sound Science on Dub Lab Radio with me, your host, Dr. Wando Pierce. On this show, I talk about science and music with the help of those in the know from both worlds while playing an eclectic mix of tunes to get you ready for your Monday. Let's start the show off with Toe Lee by JoJo Abbott.
1: When you tell me you never go to-to, but I see you to-to. Have you seen that day? When you tell me you never go to jump, but I see you go
2: I beg you quick.
0: So later this month, on the 27th of March, renowned poet and activist Natasha T. Miller will be presenting the Science of Grief at Science Gallery Detroit. In an effort to provide a safe space for people to share stories about their grief, the 14 hour event will explore seven different types of grief. Queer, suicide, trans, sibling, Detroit, parent, disease and illness through performances from local comedians, poets, and testimonials from attendees. The overnight event points to the period in which grief takes its greatest toll, nighttime. I am so honoured to be kicking off the event by speaking about the ways in which grief affects the brain. So, this month's episode, in honour of the event, I'll be talking about exactly that the science of grief. In the first part of the show, I'll be thinking about why we grieve. Asking if something so painful makes any evolutionary sense. My guest this month, psychiatrist Dr. Peter Reed, Professor of Psychology Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, will be explaining how the brain responds to grief and what happens when grief becomes complicated. In the second half of the show, I'll be talking about how different cultures use music to celebrate the lives of those who have passed, and talking to musician Jarrett Ramiro about how music can heal just like to say at this point that if you are experiencing grief please be aware that the show this month will include themes that might be triggering but i do hope that i'll be able to provide a little scientific insight into what goes on in our brain when we are grieving and some of the positive ways music can aid in the process more after this new forms by ronnie size and represent
3: of brown paper sounds that we bring a of a different nature rhythms get greater than rhythms they get greater yes another rougher to form for the chaser new configuration new riff and new structure Built on a frame that'll hold and won't puncture tight we wrap it up it's wrapped tightly mm.
0: grief is probably one of the worst human experiences yet unfortunately We all, at some point in our lives, will probably go through it. But it's not just us. In 1872, Darwin described monkeys as weeping through grief. And since then, observations of animal grief have accumulated. Adult humans show distress when separated from a loved one. But this is different from grief after death, because unlike death, separation is impermanent. Under the age of four, children don't understand the difference between separation and death. It's only around the age of six and seven that they begin to grasp the concept and understand that death is irreversible. What this means is that in young children there is an equivalent reaction to separation and death. This is a good point of comparison when considering how similar animal grief is to human grief. Even primates, the closest animals to humans in evolutionary terms, are nowhere near to a five-year-old in terms of cognitive development. So you could expect that the same lack of distinction between reactions to separation and reactions to death would be evident in primates and there is evidence to back that up. This means that reactions to separation, at least in social birds and mammals, is shared between species and this gives us clues as to how grief evolved. So let's go back to school for a second. So Charles Darwin's theory of evolution describes the way in which a species adapts to changes in the environment, which present a challenge through natural selection. Whether a feature is adaptive in evolutionary terms depends on its net contribution to fitness. That's the ability to pass genes down to succeeding generations, despite these challenges. In other words, survival of the fittest. If a gene contributes to producing an individual that is in better health, or can obtain more of life's essential resources, or can attract mates, or produce viable offspring, or feed and protect them so that they can successfully reproduce, it will increase fitness. These changes increase the likelihood of their survival and is achieved through natural selection. So features that are found in lots of different species are described as being conserved. And this usually means that they're very important. So since grief is found in lots of different species in the animal kingdom, it's conserved. Does this mean it's adaptive? And if it isn't adaptive, how did it survive natural selection? So to answer this question, we need to think about the effect of grief on fitness. Studies looking at specific indicators of physiological stress show that the secretion of stress hormones show an increase following bereavement. This is greater when the stress is more intense. There is also evidence to support suppression of reproductive function as a result of stress following grief. And studies of the immune system indicate changes in immune cells that are associated with depression. Taken together with the fact that there are also psychological consequences of grief, including inability to concentrate, lack of sleep and loss of appetite, it would seem that grief is definitely not something that is good for a person's health and therefore it doesn't seem to aid fitness, but do the opposite. So if this is the case, then how did grief survive natural selection? Why were individuals who grieved not replaced by those who didn't grieve? The most common theory is that every adaptive feature involves a trade-off between its benefits and its costs. So, for example, fighting has evolved throughout the animal kingdom because it plays an important role in being able to obtain scarce resources and fending off danger. But it also involves a cost in terms of the risk of injury and also the energy that has to be used up in order to fight. So grief must be a cost incurred in pursuit of something that has important adaptive consequences. And what is that? I'll tell you after this.
3: And the life you can't have step it
1: starts with the young ones
0: doing That was code of the street by Gangster. So before that music break, I was talking about how grief is perhaps collateral damage for an adaptive feature. and that feature is maintaining social bonds even when the person that you share those bonds with is absent. the adaptive response to separation of a loved one can be seen between a baby and its mother shout out to all of my friends who have just had babies and who are sleep deprived but still being fantastic mothers. So when a mother goes away the baby cries and the mother hears the cries and returns. Clearly this is an adaptive function because it aids reunion. Oh, daughter, I for the life. For social relationships to endure despite separations, there must be a mechanism to cause social bonds to persist during separation. In the case of relationships, they involve the presence of an enduring mental model of the relationship, which is continually checked with the input from the outside world. When there are signs of a discrepancy between the inputs and the mental model, an emotional reaction, distress, is generated. John Archer explains all of this in the chapter Grief from an Evolutionary Perspective in the Handbook of Bereavement Research. He explains that grief is a byproduct of these mechanisms whose primary function is to maintain social relationships that are crucial for fitness. However, although this theory makes a lot of sense, there are other theories worth considering.
4: It's an incentive salience problem that that attachment figures are highly rewarding.
0: That's psychiatrist, Dr. Peter Fried, who works with people experiencing chronic dysfunctional reactions to loss.
4: And, um, you know, so many good things come from being reunited with an attachment figure that when you're separated from an attachment figure, it functions as a punishment. And therefore, to, therefore you've got a gradient set up uh, from you know, the organism can kind of calculate how good it would be to be reunited and how bad it is to be separated. And so you get your incentive salient system going where cues or reminders of the attachment trigger trigger dopamine release, basically. You can assume that it triggers dopamine release. And every, you know, you hear a sound that sounds like mommy, let's say it's mommy. And, oh, what was that? Or you, you know, you, there's a footstep. Oh, maybe they're home or, you smell something that reminds you of food they would cook. Oh, there's... and so all these stimuli acquire incentive salience. Like, like let's, let's say it's a human being, and let's say their mother dies when they're 30. For the previous 30 years, any time you had a stimulus like that, mm-hmm. with a very high probability, it accurately predicted the proximity of a reward. And so you would pursue it, you know, you'd be like, oh, mom, you know, you'd, you'd run after this thing basically, you pursue it and you would get the reward of reunion. Right. So the brain has had like tens of thousands of trials in which these stimuli predict reward and the dopamine system functions, you know, normally where it gets excited and follows the, you know, the dopamine gradient up to the rewards. Now, all of a sudden, first time ever, you know, and it's not really first time because there have been other prolonged separations, but let's just say, this is the first time ever, okay. all of these stimuli are still present. The environment still contains all kinds of reminders of the deceased, but the reward is no longer available. So oh,
1: wow.
4: you could keep following these incentive salience, you know, pathways for hours, for days, for years, and just keep, you know, if if your, if your brain doesn't fix the problem, You're going to burn unbelievable resources on reward, you know, attainment, right? So you can't really afford to do that. So the brain needs a deconditioning mechanism. And so in my theory, it was sort of like a dual theory, but basically what's going on in sadness is when the attachment figure is alive, the sadness functions as a signal to the caregiver to come and reunite with me right yeah and so it Mm -hmm. it it facilitates reunion but when sadness goes on too long and it doesn't culminate in reunion it just becomes painful and kind of punishing and in my thinking it begins to basically decondition you from the reward in other words you're 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 now carrying a punishment this painful feeling of being abandoned with the stimulus that's predicting reward. So like, think about a typical breakup. You, mm-hmm. you know, you'd be going out with, you know, call him Bob, you'd be going out with Bob <laughs> on Friday night, you know, but Bob yeah. broke up with you. So you stay at home and you take out pictures of Bob, you scroll through Instagram and there's Bob and there's me with Bob and you're crying and you're sobbing. From a, <laughs> yeah. from a neuro- neurological standpoint, you're pairing sadness with Bob. And slowly, I think, over some period of time, this is supposed to kind of decondition you, A. And B, also just more you know, um, straightforwardly, trigger avoidance responses. So you, in other words, you find that all this painful exposure to the stimuli is just making you miserable because it's never culminating in reward. And so you eventually, like at some point that night, put away the Instagram, stop looking at pictures of Bob and like, go do something else, right? You then learn to avoid Bob. So you maybe unfriend him on Facebook and you take down his photographs and you put away the sweater that he gave you or the ring or, you know, whatever it is. And basically stop exposing yourself to these stimuli. And so between these two mechanisms, one of just kind of avoidance and the other is, you know, deconditioning, the grief process is meant to basically reduce the salience of Bob in this case so that at the far end of the whole thing, You know, the dream scenario is, you could be exposed to a reminder of Bob and not mount much of a salience response, basically not mount a dopamine response. In the big picture, if that model's kind of correct, it goes against the theme in the literature that says something like, you know, grief is the price you pay for love. I I think it's more instrumental than that. I think it's more purposeful than that. I think it got probably selected for better than that, which is, it's a mechanism for letting go. It's a relinquishing mechanism. And I think just, I think it's, it's one in a very broad category of responses that organisms need for letting go of tasks that are going to be low yield so that you can redirect your resources to high yield tasks.
0: was Idris Mohammed with Could Heaven Ever Be Like This? Grief following the loss of a loved one is a universally painful experience that initially feels like it will last forever. Complicated grief, also known as pathological or traumatic grief, includes debilitating recurrent pangs of painful emotions with intense yearning, longing and searching for the deceased and preoccupation with thoughts of the loved one. Attachment is thought to activate reward pathways in the brain, which may have addiction-like properties. One explanation for the difference between complicated and non-complicated grief is that reminders of the deceased may activate neural rewards, which may interfere with adapting to the loss in the present. I spoke to Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Arizona. Hi, Dr. O'Connor. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show this month. Welcome to Sound Science. It's a pleasure to be here. So a lot of your work focuses on bereavement and some of the neurobiological, immune, and autonomic parameters that vary between individual grief responses. So I came across one of your papers that was published back in 2008 entitled, Craving Love, Enduring Grief Activates Brain's Reward Centre. And I found the paper incredibly fascinating and actually quite surprising. So I was hoping you could share with the audience what that study was about and some of the discoveries that you made.
5: Sure. So this uh, study was quite exciting. Neurobiology of grief is definitely in its infancy. So trying to understand how our neurons take in information about the loss of someone we love dearly How does it process that information? How does the brain understand what happened? And then over time, how do we adapt to the fact that this person is no longer there? So this was really uh, the second study, the first was just sort of very descriptive, just sort of, can we even put people who are grieving into a scanner and and scan their brain? This second study, the one you're referring to, really did try to contrast people who are adapting resiliently, which thankfully is most of us, as difficult as grief is, most of us are fairly resilient over time. But contrasting that group with the group who don't seem to adapt very well, who continue to have this severe, persistent yearning for the person, and also uh, usually functional impairment. So some aspect of getting to work is, is really overwhelming, or they're not able to care for their family the way that they wish that they could. So contrasting these two groups by showing them photos of the person who had died, like if you showed someone a photograph album, we showed them those pictures in the scanner and contrasted them with pictures of a stranger, so the, the missionary people, and we wanted them to be thinking specifically about the person they had lost. Right. So when we look at these two groups, um if you looked at everyone all together, we saw lots of areas related to emotion and memory, um, the, the painful aspects of, of grief. But when you contrasted the two groups, there was really only one brain area that showed differences in its response to these photos, and that was this nucleus accumbens area, which we know is a part of what we call the reward network. So when we see something that we have experienced as, as fulfilling needs that we have, as being a pleasurable experience, there's machinery in our brain that tells us, this is a good thing. We should keep doing this. And seeing our loved ones, being with our loved ones is certainly one of those things. When we bond with a mate or when we have a child, they're really strong chemicals in our brain that just we keep seeing them over and over again. Dopamine, oxytocin, um, the bonding hormone it's sometimes called, and also opioids are very densely shuttled back and forth between neurons in this nucleus accumbens region. The thing that seemed strange initially was, why would you get more of this reward circuitry activated in people who aren't doing as well? They're looking at a photo of someone that they yearn for, and yearning is maybe another way of saying craving. So it seems, and we don't have longitudinal studies that show this, but... You could interpret the result. that most of us, as we come to understand the world without our loved one, our brain is able to recognize that the photo of this person doesn't any longer predict that we're going to see them. That as much as we may have memories and good memories when we look at a photograph, it's not the same as cueing us to try and reach out for them. For the people who have complicated grief, they do seem Mm -hmm. to persist in really wanting that person. Although they cognitively know the person is gone... They persist in wanting them to be there. It's an overwhelming feeling. And in fact, the activation in this region was correlated. So those who had higher activation in this area also told us they had the highest levels of yearning when we just asked them, how much do you yearn on a daily basis for your deceased loved one?
0: Shintaro Sakamoto with Love If Possible. So let me see if I've got this right. So the difference between complicated grief and non-complicated grief is that in complicated grief it's not just the pain centres that are being activated in the brain, but also the pleasure centres. So is it possible that addiction might be the mechanism by which people are unable to get over their grief leading to complicated grief?
5: So you can think of anything that we need in our life food, water, as being something that we want, right, because it fulfills Mm -hmm. a need. So when we say hunger or thirst, that feels like a normal function. We wouldn't necessarily say that a person craves water, (laughs) right, because it's a natural (laughs) function. (laughs) Right. So because we know that bonding with our loved ones is actually also a requirement for life, children who don't bond, for example, don't thrive, And so I think of it more as a fulfilling a need, a normal need. And that what happens is we have this knowledge that this person we see over and over again will fulfill this need for us. And then when they're gone, we have to learn. We have to come to understand that they won't do that anymore. It seems to me it's the adapting to that knowledge which is challenging. It isn't that there's anything wrong with yearning for the person per se, just the conflict between reality, you can't have that person anymore, and, and the continuing desire to do so.
0: So talking of adaption, earlier in the show, we were discussing grief and evolution and whether it's adaptive or maladaptive. What are your thoughts on that? You know,
5: I think grieving is a really natural process and is conserved across species and, and certainly across history and across cultures. We know that the expression of grief looks really different in different cultures, but the experience of grief when we lose a loved one is universal. So I don't think grief is maladaptive, although evolutionary psychology writers have suggested that might be the case. I think there are lots of really adaptive things about grief. I'll give you an example from primates. When a primate mother loses her infant, there's often a period of time where she continues to carry the infant even though that infant is no longer alive. And during that time, the mother withdraws from the group of other primates and doesn't groom herself very well, even though she's very attentive to the infant. And the troop members actually will come and groom her which I think is the most primal way of describing that we're very busy in the moments when we're grieving, trying to understand what the heck just happened. And so the good thing about grief is it's really obvious when people are grieving in the sense of we see them crying or we see that posture where they're hunched over. And it elicits in us a desire to help them. I think that's a very natural response, a natural empathy we have, and that helps to support the person while they take the time to figure out what the heck happened. So I think there are lots of ways that grief communicates something socially that works very well for a social species.
0: That's really fascinating and kind of speaks to the fact that you have to think about all of these different features that aids our survival as a collective whole rather than in isolation. I really hadn't thought about it that way. So my final question is about why some people experience complex grief. Are their brains wired differently? Is it perhaps something to do with their genetics?
5: The vast majority of us are resilient, it doesn't make sense and could even be harmful to interfere in a person who's adapting normally. So that is to say, having their family support them, having their neighborhood or community support them makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't necessarily make sense to send a person who's resilient to a psychiatrist. (laughs) Grief itself is a very normal process, even though it's intensely distressing. So instead, what we think about is the ways that we might predict who will develop a a grief disorder or these processes that I mentioned that would maintain grief instead of healing normally, what might get in the way of that healing. So things we know that are predictive probably include genetics, biology, social interactions, education. (laughs) One of the ones we know about is that um, people who've had attachment-related traumas earlier in their life are more likely to develop complicated grief. So people who lost a parent as a child, had some intense separation anxiety, other things that are probably using some of this same attachment machinery in the brain. But I think for me, focusing on these processes like avoidance or rumination, it's easier to intervene with those mental processes than it is to do something like change the sex of the person or uh, change whether they had a traumatic event. So I think that potentially we will have most effect by figuring out what those mental mechanisms are and and learning how we could intervene.
0: Dr. O'Connor, that was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you for
5: having me. It's nice to see that people are interested in this really important work.
0: Funerals take many different forms across different cultures. In Nigerian ceremonies, for example, there is typically a lot of singing and reciting of prayers, praising the family through poetry and eulogising the departed. It would seem that no matter where you go in the world, music is an integral part of saying goodbye. The loss of someone you love is a traumatic experience, no matter how old you are. Grief is incredibly complex and involves a lot of different emotions that are hard to process, especially when you're young. Aim for the Heart is an organization which aims to instill emotional literacy in young people who have experienced trauma, like the death of a loved one. They do this using training in the arts, so I spoke to musician Jarrett Romero, who has been working with Aim for the Heart for a while, about how he uses music in some of the programs that they have.
2: Hi Jarrett, welcome to Sound Science. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show this month. For our audience, would you mind just introducing yourself and a little bit about what you do here in LA?
3: Well, first off, I just want to say thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Jarrett Romero. I'm currently a residing artist living in Los Angeles, California. I'm originally from Raleigh, North Carolina, and I came out I came out here about two years ago in pursuits of my career within the art.
2: That sounds amazing. So in terms of the music that you create, is it electronic or instrumental, vocal? What kind of music do you make?
3: Well, I'm a vocalist. Right now, I'm meshing together different sounds of different, different music. People forget that music is a world language. Right now, I'm I'm focusing on diving into techno. I have went from techno to Caribbean. I went from Caribbean to you know R&B. Just studying everything that I can to make sure that I grab all aspects of what sound is.
1: Mm-hmm
2: would you mind telling me a little bit about how you got into working with aim for the heart and what you do with them
3: me and my pursuits of coming out here to la like i said about two years ago i had one cousin who actually did reside in los angeles and when i came out here he was basically my only contact with family he had set me up with uh, Layla through, it was a community event. Layla was actually um, having her classes off of Pico and Fairfax. Right, and, um, and
2: Layla, Layla is, sorry to interrupt you, Layla is the founder of Aims for the Heart.
3: Yes, correct. Okay. When my cousin reached out to me, he let me know, hey, there's this beautiful woman named Layla who works with Tupac and she deals with uh, kids and trauma and grief and I feel that will be a place that you can grow and learn and, you know, focus in on what you have so that you can give back to the community. And so him telling me about that, I basically pursued that. I would come to class and I would just, you know, sometimes sit in and I would watch as other people express themselves. And there was such a liberation and a feeling of freedom to freely express yourself
2: it sounds like an incredible organization and a really important one and a good example of how music is so much more than just you know listening for the sake of enjoyment how do you feel music actually facilitates healing during times of grief from your experience with aim for the heart
3: so being a leader within the workshop what i realized is you have to work individually and one-on-one with certain students everyone doesn't handle trauma and grief the same just like everyone doesn't have the same fingerprint. We are all different, so there's different methods into approaching your grief and your trauma. But what I realized that helps and is the main focus and key to understanding your grief and trauma is understanding you as an individual, understanding your self-worth and your self-love, because through that process of healing, when you do love yourself, You start to let go of things in a way that doesn't necessarily condemn you. Um, So many times when we're handling our grief and trauma, we seem to uh, put ourselves in a stagnant position where we really don't get anything done. You know, it could become overwhelming when you're trying to deal with certain things that are just kind of suppressed but what i've seen is just coming to the kids with consistent love is one of the main things that allows them to open up
2: and they can do that through the music so they write and they make music
3: yes most of the students they write spoken word some of the students they like to express themselves whether it be dancing some of them are visual artists so they'll paint something and you know the room will be silent and then we'll you know see the afterworks after after they've you know finished their art, and then you can feel the feeling in the room of like, oh my God, like this this was in that person, and they just express themselves. It's very beautiful and unique to like see it face to face.
2: And that is what music, I guess, is all about. It's a way to, for self-expression and a way to interpret the world around us. And at a time of grief, I feel like having that creative outlet must be a really powerful
3: tool um yes i definitely feel as though um what we're doing is we're creating new sounds as we're trying to figure out what sounds to create and that's the amazing part about it is you know once you're in pursuit of something you actually start creating something brand new that you had no intentions of but out of the beautiful pureness of your intentions you create mm. even more, you know?
2: Yeah, and where it's coming from, I don't think there's any human experience like grief. And so to create music from a place that is so, so, so difficult and challenging, and actually uh, to be able to bring yourself to even create mm. at a time like that, I imagine that what you end up with is inc- well, incredibly special. Jarrett, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. Awesome. All right, then. Thanks again. Good
3: to see you. Talk to you.
2: Okay, then. Bye. You too. Take
1: care.
0: Well, that's the end of the show. I hope it was insightful. And um, for more information about my guest this month or more information about the Science of Grief event that's coming up at the end of the month at the Detroit Science Gallery or information on Aim for the Heart or to find links to other resources on grief, please follow me on Instagram. That's at Soundscience Podcast. Or you can go to the show notes at www.soundscience.com podcast.com and there'll be some information there episode three sleep and rave culture will be available on itunes or spotify or wherever you get your podcast later this week so stay tuned for that um, just search dr yorando pierce and please do rate it seeing us out is Ebo taylor with Sana. enjoy the rest of your monday